0: Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. For your listening edification, this show has been pre-recorded on Saturday, February 6th, to be rebroadcast live on Monday, February 8th, 2021 at 6 p.m central standard time live in austin texas on koop 91.7 fm and streaming live at co-op.org you can listen live each monday night from 6 to 7 p.m central standard time at koop.org many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. all comments are welcomed and can be sent to pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com that's pgatos00 at gmail.com this is our 42nd post-covid show a new world but the same place so stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue thank you for joining us and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week again thank you for joining us tonight and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows so stay tuned but first in the battle of ideas are you ready to go to war pedro gatos and bringing light into darkness monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on co-op radio in 2002 has been investigating and seeking to present genuine truth-seeking perspective to U.S. foreign policy impacts around the world, as well as other preventable human-generated behavior that creates or increases human misery in the world. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is too often we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for building our understandings upon. Tonight our focus is on Black History Month, The Bringing Light Into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis 2021, Black History format schedules four shows to themes associated with what created the conditions for Black Lives Matter to materialize. Last week, our focus was on Do Black Lives Matter? The impact of systemic racism on Black history, on how three different periods of U.S. history the slavery era, the Jim Crow era, and the modern day discrimination era, which we defined as 1964 to present all use different means and methods to subject African-Americans to second-class citizenry, thus revealing how systemic racism manifests itself in a changing racist world. We also documented modern-day discrimination in the United States today through a State of Black America in the U.S. Today show last week. We did so in a comparative analysis where we compared U.S. white population standings with black population standings on a host of indices. This week, our interest is to drill down into pre-World War II and post-World War II war experiences of African-Americans versus whites in our country. We share a stunning portrayal of what that experience was for a Tuskegee Airman. We feature, or I should say we re-feature an interview we had with Charles Chenier, a young airman who at the age of 18 joined the World War II effort as a Tuskegee Airman in 1943. We interviewed Mr. Chenier during our Black History Month celebration in 2007 in a show we named In Honor of Tuskegee Airmen and Their Two Front War with special guest Tuskegee Airman Charles Chenier. This week's show places that interview within the context of how discrimination in the mid-1930s through the 1970s pejoratively distorted the intent of FDR's New Deal benefits and later the GI Bill's benefits with respect to benefits for African Americans relative to Anglos. We are specifically speaking to the Social Security Act of 1935 and the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944 Commonly referred to as the GI Bill that FDR sought to have legislated. The intent was to give all GIs access to social mobility in the creation of a strong middle class. So let us turn first to the Social Security Act of 1935 that FDR initiated. This is from an article and report from the Center for Social Development, George Warren Brown School of Social Work. The report is called The Excluded. An Estimate of the Consequences of Denying Social Security to Agricultural and Domestic Workers by David Stowe's S-T-O-E-S-Z, Keene University, K-E-A-N, 2016. So the Social Security Act of 1935, for instance, prohibited domestic and agricultural workers, and a huge number of whom were Black or Latino, from receiving benefits from the act in addressing the plight of destitute workers, the evolving concept of Social Security included several provisions the report describes, although notably health care was not among them. Because of widespread joblessness, unemployment insurance was included to tide the unemployed for a fixed period until they could find work. Social Security provided a public pension for retirees and public assistance addressed the circumstances of the poor who were elderly disabled and blind, as well as dependent children. Two features would bedevil the Social Security Act as passed in 1935. First, Social Security would exclude a long list of workers, including, as we mentioned, agricultural and domestic workers. Moreover, unemployment insurance and public assistance programs were managed by states, not the federal government thus assuring them the state's latitude in not only determining eligibility for benefits, but the amount of aid as well. And who controlled the state governments? The Jim Crow interests, whose interests were to expand and consolidate white supremacist interests. As a result, disproportionately, large numbers of African Americans and Latinos were either denied assistance or received minimal aid. Initially, historians attributed the exclusion of low-wage workers to to Southern employers who demanded a docile labor force and pitted blacks against whites in competition for low wage work. Quote, the primary motive emanating particularly from Southern politicians who monopolized crucial congressional committee chairmanships was to protect employers access to the primarily black but also Latino agricultural and domestic labor force in the South and Southwest. The control by antebellum plantation owners Pre-Civil War plantation owners over black workers was thus extended post-Reconstruction through provisions of the Social Security Act. And so to be clear, the report indicates that accordingly, the celebrated African American historian John Hope Franklin observed, quote, when the Social Security Board was established in 1935, provisions were made for old age assistance and unemployment benefits in a large number of categories. Since agricultural and domestic workers were excluded, however, a tremendous proportion of the Negro population failed to qualify for the benefits provided by the Act. Even in the program of old-age assistance, there was a tendency to grant lower sums, especially in the South, to aged Blacks than to aged whites. One historian calculated that, quote, more than three-fifths of Black workers, those employed in agricultural labor or domestic service, were excluded from coverage, end quote, while another put the figure at, quote, two-thirds of employed workers, end quote. Again, these citations can be found in the resource that I documented earlier in this segment. So when we turn to the GI Bill of June 22, 1944, we rely on some sourcing from three different sources. The first is an article called the GI Bill Open doors to college for many vets, but politicians created a separate one for Blacks. It's by Joseph Johnson, an assistant associate professor at Mississippi State, and is stated just a month or so ago on on November 10th, 2020. He indicates that President Franklin Roosevelt signed the GI Bill into law on June 22nd, 1944. It laid the foundations for benefits that would help generations of veterans achieve social mobility. Formerly known as the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, the bill made unprecedented commitments to the nation's veterans. For instance, it provided federal assistance to veterans in the form of housing and employment benefits. And of all the benefits offered to the GI Bill, funding for higher education and job training emerged as the most popular. And aside is just that my dad actually was a beneficiary of the GI Bill, went to the University of Texas and 1953-55 period under that GI Bill. That's probably not as important, but at a personal level it is. Uh, More than 2 million veterans flocked to college campuses throughout the country as a result of this bill. But even as former service members entered college, not all of them accessed the bill's benefits in the same way. That's because white Southern politicians designed the distribution of benefits under the GI Bill to uphold their segregationist beliefs, writes the professor. A second source on the subject, author of a book, When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold History of Racial Inequality in the 20th Century America by Ira Katznelson, K-A-T-Z-N-E-L-S-O-N. No other New Deal initiative had as great an impact, he writes, on changing the country as the Selective Service Readjustment Act, the GI Bill. Aimed at reintegrating 16 million veterans, it reached 8 out of 10 men born in the 1920s. Even today, this legislation, which quickly came to be called the GI Bill of Rights, qualifies as the most wide-ranging set of social benefits ever offered by the federal government in a single comprehensive initiative. Between 1944 and 1971, federal spending for former soldiers in this model welfare system totaled over $95 billion. By 1948, 15% of the federal budget was devoted to the GI Bill, and the Veterans Administration employed 17% of the federal workforce. He goes on, With the help of the GI Bill, millions bought homes, attended college, started business ventures, and found jobs commensurate with their skills. Through these opportunities and by advancing the momentum towards suburban living, mass consumption, and the creation of wealth and economic security, this legislation created the middle class of the U.S. of A. No other instrument was nearly as important, the author argues. He goes on, April 12, 1995, on the 50th anniversary of FDR's death in Warm Springs, Georgia, Bill Clinton had this to say regarding the GI Bill. FDR's most enduring legacy was not Social Security or any other landmark bill, but the quote vision most clearly embodied in the G.I. Bill, which passed Congress in June 1944, just a few days after D-Day, which gave generations of veterans a chance to get an education, to build strong families and good lives, and to build the nation's strongest economy ever to change the face of America. The G.I. Bill helped to unleash a prosperity never before known, according to President Clinton. So the consensus representation of the G.I. Bill in American history is that It raised the entire nation to a plateau of social well-being never before experienced in U.S. history, end quote. But this really is revisionist history of sorts, because the truth is it raised the well-being of white families to a plateau of social well-being never before experienced into a strong middle class America status. But at the same time, it left blacks behind, increasing the already great racial wealth divide. So, written under Southern auspices, the article states, the law was deliberately designed to accommodate Jim Crow. Its administration widened the racial wealth gap, the country's racial gap. And then finally, in a 2006 article, The Inequality Hidden Within the Race Neutral GI Bill by Shannon Luter's Manual, this was back in 2017, September 18th. This article was in the Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. It details the advantages and disadvantages the Black population faced when putting the GI Bill to use. Edward Humes, H-U-M-E-S, writes, Black veterans, and I quote, Black veterans and their families were denied their fair share of the multi-generational enriching impact of home ownership and economic security that the GI Bill conferred on a majority of white veterans, their children and their grandchildren, end quote. Such an imbalance went against Roosevelt's intentions as he had purposefully created the first social legislation that did not discriminate on the basis of race, the author writes. Much of the disparity in the dissemination of GI benefits came from the efforts of Representative John Elliott Rankin, a congressional segregationist of great influence, who argued for the bill to be, quote, a matter of local control and states' rights. In many parts of the United States, This allowed veteran administration counselors to push black veterans into vocational and trade schools instead of academic institutions. Quote, the counselors didn't merely discourage black veterans. They said no, no to home loans, no to job placement, except for the most menial positions, and no to college, except for historically black colleges, maintaining the sham of separate but equal According to this writer Humes, 28% of white veterans went to college on the GI Bill, while only 12% of the black veterans did so. So you can do the the math. It's almost two and a half times less. Anyhow, this John Elliott Rankin, this Representative John Elliott Rankin, was a staunch segregationist. He chaired the committee that drafted the bill. From this position, he ensured that the local veterans' administrations controlled the distribution of funds. This meant that when Black Southerners applied for their assistance, they faced the prejudices of white officials from their communities who often forced them into vocational schools instead of colleges or denied their benefits altogether. And then finally, Shannon Luter's manual writes in the article, The Inequality Hidden Within the Race-Neutral GI Bill, says, while the bill itself was progressive, much of the country still functioned under both covert and blatant segregation. Therefore, when blacks did receive thorough training, they still weren't considered for positions that matched their skill set. Humes writes, quote, 86% of the skilled, professional, and semi-skilled jobs went to white veterans, while 92% of the non-skilled and service positions went to black veterans. Blacks were also pushed away from GI-sponsored home loans, which enabled white veterans to own property that they could then pass on to their children and grandchildren. In the summer of 1947, 3,000 VA home loans were issued in Mississippi, with only two of those loans being granted to black veterans. On the positive side, the GI Bill, the article concludes, did boost the black middle class in unprecedented ways and would pave the way for the civil rights movement. The resulting legislation of the 1960s put veterans and civilians one step closer to equal treatment under the law, supposedly. In other words, arguably, you can say the GI Bill boosted both whites and blacks into the middle class. However, in reality, if the boost is significantly greater for whites than blacks, in actuality, the great racial wealth divide expands rather than constricts, the inequalities that desperately to this day need our attention and rectification. So when we return to our summary from last week's show, where we discussed the first phase of the disenfranchisement of African-Americans being directly correlated with slavery, it was crystal clear that African-Americans since and before, 100 years before the forming of our country or the founding of our country in 1776, were disenfranchised through slavery. And through slavery, they were robbed of all capacity to, cr- to accrue any amount of wealth. In today's show, so far, at least part one, we just showed how during the Jim Crow and modern day periods or errors of discrimination, use different methods of disenfranchising blacks to access wealth relative to whites. In other words, after we move out of the period of slavery in 1865 and into the Reconstruction era that ended in 1877, what occurred were different means and methods of widening that wealth gap, of continuing the disenfranchisement of African Americans and treating them as second-class citizens, despite the absence of slavery. Last week, we augmented the historical record with the recognition that black codes and convict leasing that occurred during this post-Reconstruction period was just another form of slavery in post-slavery America. As you read your history, you'll see following the Civil War, The 40 acres that were promised to all African-American freed slaves was reneged on by the U.S. government, Andrew Johnson, following Abraham Lincoln's death. But today, we include other disenfranchisement mechanisms that include the Social Security Act and the GI Bill. So even federal acts that arguably, in principle, sought to equalize benefits between all, but as a result of state control resulting in accelerating not closing that racial wealth gap this is what brings us to the current dynamic that promoted i believe black lives matter movement was the continuous recognition that this is systemic systemic racism as dr king alluded to in his last few speeches so as a second portion of this show we wanted to dedicate to charles chanier who recently passed away within the last year or so or two. I had the great, great honor of, of visiting with him on a number of occasions by phone and having Charles Chanier on Bringing Light into Darkness back on February 7th, 2007 was our show. Mr. Chanier was born on October 27th, 1924 and passed on September 23rd, 2018. The honor of visiting with them was captured in these three segments. The first segment we'll get to in just a second, but the U.S. Army Air Corps had been limited to white personnel since its inception in 1907. The Army officer corps included a predominance of men from the South, essentially the old Confederate States of America during the Civil War. The belief that blacks were inherently inferior to whites was widespread across much of the United States, and particularly in the South, where segregation was still common. Uh, in fact, Southern military men had helped to write an Army War College study in 1925 that concluded black troops were, quote, mentally inferior and barely fit for combat. But Charles Chenier, he was featured in an article called A Creole World War II Hero. This is back in... 2017, and it just indicated the very minimum number of Tuskegee Airmen that were still alive at that time. And as part of the celebration of Black History Month in 2007, Bringing Light into Darkness had the great pleasure of interviewing Charles Chenier. And we basically named the program after his own experience of having to fight two wars. One was against Nazi Germany in World War II, and the other was the longest ongoing war in our nation's history namely racism right here in the United States of America. So this first track captures a little bit about the Tuskegee Airmen history and the history of the NAACP leading the fight against barriers to inhibit eligibility of African-Americans from becoming World War II pilots. Tuskegee was the beginning of a process in which trained pilots went up to Michigan where they were denied access to office clubs and they demanded access and were transferred to the Godman Field in Kentucky, and then further mistreatment was confronted, and they were later transferred to the Freeman Field in Indiana before finally being transferred to the European Theater. Famously, the turning point was when Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt came to Tuskegee, and Captain Anderson, in charge of training, took her up in a plane, and Eleanor Roosevelt loved the way he flew the plane, and that that is when she went back and told her husband, FDR, that The blacks were able to fly a plane, and that that is when they really got down to to training them. So this track one highlights the actual World War II experience of Charles Chenier and his fellow Tuskegee Airmen and their combat experience. This track is about eight and a half minutes. Enjoy. Okay, we are with Mr. Charles Chenier. He is a former Tuskegee Airman, and he was born a few years ago in uh, 1924. And at age 18, he was drafted and became a member of the Tuskegee Airmen. It's a great privilege to have you on the air. This is Black History Month, and so we thought it would be really neat to visit with a real American hero, a former airman that fought two wars, fought in World War II, and also fought the barriers that all black men and women faced um, during that time, and, and still face to a, s- a certain degree today. So I want to uh, welcome you to bringing light into darkness, and thank you so much for, for joining us. And let me just start off by asking you, if you can share with us, take us back to the 1940s. I guess you, you, you were actually drafted in, in what year, sir? February of 43. Okay, okay, February of 43. And did you immediately be- become associated and deployed to... The Tuskegee uh, Cadet School. Is that where the Cadet School was yeah, in Tuskegee? In Tuskegee, Alabama. And actually, for our listeners, just so that they know, the first class of Tuskegee Airmen that enlisted, the first aviation cadet class began in 1941, and they actually completed their training nine months later in March of 1942. And out of the 13 that started, five were successful. And it was interesting when I was doing a little research that according to the Wikipedia, it was not such an easy task to be successful there, that prior to Tuskegee, there was no military pilots that had been African American. However, there were a series of legislative moves by the United States Congress, and in 1941, it forced the Army Air Corps to form an all-black combat unit. And this was much to the War Department's chagrin, uh, in an effort to eliminate the unit before it even began, the War Department set up a system to accept only those with a high level of flight experience or higher education that they expected would be very hard to fill, and this policy backfired when the Air Corps received numerous applications from men who qualified even under these restrictions. But before we turn to Mr. shanir We need to take a quick break for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light Into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos, with our esteemed guest, Charles Chenier. We'll be back right after this.